Hi, this is Andy calling from Opinion Science Insights. We're polling the American public to gauge their opinions on new media. Do you have a moment to answer some questions? How did I get your phone number? We actually have a computer program that dials random phone numbers, and you're the lucky one today. N not so lucky. Sure, sure. I, I get it. But um, do, do you have a few minutes to answer some questions? Great. Thank you. Uh, okay. Uh, do, do you listen to podcasts? Got it. Okay. And how frequently would you say you listen to podcasts? Once a month? Once a week? Several times a week? Or every day? So, sorry, sometimes is not an option. You can choose from once a month, once a week, several times per week, or every day. That once a month, once a week, several times per week. We see the results of public opinion polls constantly in the media. Before elections, it's a constant question of where the country is leaning. Throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, polling firms have been chasing questions about the public's willingness to wear masks, get a vaccine, stay at home. And there's plenty of survey work to see what people think about science and technology, the economy, media outlets, and all sorts of things. And it can seem simple. Just ask everyone you can find what their opinion is. But it's really not so simple. For every percentage we see on the news, like 65% of U.S. adults think there's intelligent life on other planets, a team of survey researchers had to develop just the right question, ask just the right people, and crunch the numbers just the right way, so that we're confident the number that comes out the other side is an accurate reflection of the whole population. I'm sure my silly example a few minutes ago broke about a dozen rules of good polling. And by the way, that statistic about two-thirds of Americans thinking there's probably intelligent life out in the universe, that's real. It comes from Pew Research Center, a nonpartisan fact tank that informs the public about the issues, attitudes, and trends shaping the world. For decades, they've been gauging public opinion about all sorts of things, sometimes aliens, but mostly things like politics, social issues, and other things like that. But how do they do it? Can we really get a sense of where the whole country stands without asking each and every person living here? Yeah, we can. I mean, that's, that's like the whole reason this episode exists. You're listening to Opinion Science, the show about our opinions, where they come from, and how they change. I'm Andy Luttrell, and this week I talk to Ashley Amaya. She's a senior survey methodologist at Pew Research Center, I've been wanting to have someone from Pew on this podcast for a while, because I've always respected the work they do and thought they could give an overview of how this whole polling business really works. And Ashley is just the right person for the job. She got her master's in survey methodology from the University of Michigan and her PhD from the University of Maryland. And before Pew, she was a survey methodologist for a couple other big hitters in the polling world. I talked to Ashley about how she got involved in public opinion polling, and she walked me through how Pew goes from a survey idea to the final numbers we see on the news. She also shares how we can be smart consumers of polling results, and what the future of polling holds. You know, the, this is a podcast about opinion science, right? That's the name of it. So my background is in social psychology and, and the work that I do is in attitudes and persuasion. Um, and so 
along the road, I've read plenty of the just survey methodology stuff. And in the podcast, we talk more conceptually about attitudes and how they change and how we talk about them. But we've never really played with the idea of like, how do we actually even know what a person's opinion is to begin with, right? Which is this methodological wonder <laughs> that, you know, a hundred years ago, there was this paper that the whole contribution was, oh, we can measure these things. <laughs> and now we've, we've made so many strides since then. So I wanted to talk to someone who really sort of has their feet firmly planted in that world and introduce people to, I think, you know, you hear polls on TV and in newspapers, and I think it's easy for people to kind of brush them off or not really just kind of let the numbers wash over them and not realize like, no, it actually took a lot of work <laughs> to get those numbers. Um, and so we'll sort of talk about where they come from. Great. Great. Yeah, happy, um, to, happy to help. Good. So as a sort of a foundation for that, I'm curious what brought you into the world of this whole uh, thing. You've, I mean, Pew is not your first polling rodeo. And so what is it that drew you into this world? Uh, and, and what is it that brought you to where you are now? Sure. Um, I actually started as an engineering student at University of Michigan, and I joined their undergrad research opportunity program and wanted to do something a little different. And so I got placed as a research assistant um, for the surveys of consumers. Um, and it was great. It, did, it was all the things I loved, which was doing a bunch of math. But it was a lot more social, um, both in this, the subject that we were studying, right, and just the surroundings in general. And so I ended up switching my major. I kept that job for um, the rest of my undergrad career. And then I went on to get a master's and PhD in survey methods. So that was it's that. <laughs> been 20 years now. <laughs> so, yeah, what is it? I mean, are there things that keep you... Like, like, what are the new things that sort of keep that world interesting and exciting and, and, and worth pushing forward? Um, several things. I think number one is that I'm never uh, studying just one topic, right? So I get to dabble in economics. I get to dabble in religion. I get to dabble in health. And so it's always learning something new from a substantive perspective, um, which I love. It's also um, evolving challenges and evolving um, methods with emerging technology, right? So as we move into the internet age, as we moved into cell phones, as um, new data become available, and now as we also move into alternative data sets or more um, computing power, right, which allows us to do more types of analyses than we were previously capable of. So th there's always a new, um, road to go down and uh and question to answer so your your position at pew is what exactly so i i read the title <laughs> but i didn't quite know like what that actually means your day-to-day -day looks like neither does my mother so okay. <laughs> <laughs> um so i am a senior survey methodologist at the pew research center and that means that um I do kind of two jobs. Number one is that most of the domestic um, data that we collect and produce at the center comes from what's called our Americans Trends Panel. And that's a group of about 12,000 people um, that are have agreed to answer surveys for us every few weeks. Um, and so my job is a lot of quality control there. Are those people becoming what we would typically deem um, professional panelists, right? So they're changing their behavior and how they answer questions just by participating in surveys all the time. 
Or are we getting the right mix of people um, on those surveys or recruited into the panel? Or are different kinds of people attriting or, or quitting the panel? And does that affect our data quality? So, so that's kind of one part of my job. And the other part of my job is to help design some of the larger one-off projects. So for example, a few years ago, Pew has done the Religious Landscape Survey, which really tells us what kind of people um, and what their religious beliefs are in the United States. So that's a very large endeavor. It's complicated. They make estimates in all 50 states. And so I help to figure out, all right, for the next round, how many interviews do we need to do in each state? Do we need translations in alternative languages? What modes of data collection are we going to use? How long can the survey be without harming our response rate, right? People, people don't like long surveys. How do we weight those data, et cetera? And so, so I help consult on those bigger projects. To the, to the first part about, so we'll get to the evolution of a project like that in a second. But the first thing, so with the, the panel that you maintain, two, two questions come up for me about that. One is you mentioned that you're monitoring like, are they becoming professional survey respondents? And what are you looking for to give you clues that that's happening, right? Like, what are the signs on the other end that, like, this person is answering questions as a survey respondent, not as a person in the world? So we actually just published a report on this, which is why it's top of mind. So you can go to the Pew Research Center website and look at the panel conditioning report is what it's called. But we looked at it in three different ways. We look at it to see if people that have been panelists for longer periods of time, if they're really different than our new panelists, right? Um, if they are, if they've kind of changed their behavior, um, then that tells us something. We also looked at their voting records over time. So we have the voter files. We can append hmm. that information to our panelists. So we can actually see how whether or not they were voting prior to joining the panel and whether or not that kind of on average has changed um, now. And then we also looked, we actually did an experiment where we asked um, some panelists questions about a topic more often, often than other panelists to see if the frequency with which um, we're asking these questions actually changes their behavior. Hmm. And, and what kinds of behaviors could be changing? So we, people can change their actual opinions or actual behaviors, right? So for example, somebody might not know a lot about a topic, right? So if I ask you about um, whether or not Nancy Pelosi is doing a good job as Speaker of the House, if you don't know who that is or don't know what her political affiliation is, now that I've asked you that question, you might go Google it. You might form hmm. an opinion that you didn't otherwise have. Hmm. So that's one kind of kind of true change. The other is kind of reporting change. So I ask you, you know, how much media consumption do, do you consume, right? Or how many hours a day do you, um, or articles a day do you read or listen to, et cetera? And you might not really have thought about that before. So the first time you answer that question, you might be a little unsure, you're just trying to give me an answer. And then over time, I've been more thoughtful, I've now actually considered how I'm watching or, or reading. And now I have a more concrete answer. So your, your answers might actually become more accurate over time because you're just more thoughtful and conscious. And, and you can, yeah, just see that people are settling in. And so, I mean, in, in, in the one sense, if, if 
those responses are becoming more thoughtful and conscious that, you know, pe- people do that. Like, that's just kind of how that's the evolution of learning about a, a topic. It, would that be grounds for saying this person is, is probably like n- not a naive respondent anymore and, and can't participate further? Or is it just something that that's worth correcting for or acknowledging in looking at the output? I think it's really just you actually suggest that your data is improving over time, right? Sure. You're getting more accurate answers. Um, so they might be a little different, but it's actually in your best interest um, from a measurement perspective. That makes sense. Because that was my impression. I was like, well, this kind of doesn't sound bad. <laughs> At first, I thought this was like, this is how we're catching people who are becoming too professional and just responding. But they're just learning about the topic, right? They're they're responding in that way. And, and so that sort of raises the question, the other question I have, which is, I have to imagine when people hear this, they go, oh, so all of this stuff we're learning about the country is coming from... 12,000 people who have agreed to take a survey. Why? And I, I'm guessing you would say, I still think it's valuable. <laughs> and the question is why, right? What are you doing in that to, to maintain this pool of people that makes us confident that it's actually reflective of what the, the broader society is thinking? Sure. So so first and foremost, with the, with the center's um, research on the American Trends Panel, we recruit pretty much every year. So we um, are replacing people that did kind of opt to not participate any longer. We are growing the panel. So it doesn't, it's not just 12,000. It becomes 13, 14, 15,000 over time. We also look to make sure that we're trying to recruit a representative population. So we look at age distributions. We look at race and ethnicity distributions. We look at gender distributions, education, et cetera, to see who is in our panel? And is that a good average of the, of the population? Are we representing all kinds of people? And then we also, nobody's perfect. Um, and so we have to weight the data. So for example, women are more cooperative um, and more likely to participate in a poll or a survey than men. And so we actually have to kind of re-equalize that um, or weight those data so that we have um, that we count the women as a proportion of the women in the population, and we count the men as a proportion of the men in the in the true population to to get those numbers to be more representative. And then we also compare our data on a variety of questions to um, government statistics, right? So um, surveys that are larger or have higher response rates or are otherwise considered the gold standard. Um, And so we make those comparisons to see, are we getting similar results? And if not, why not? And is that a good thing or a bad thing? Mm -hmm. You you, uh, use the words poll and survey sort of interchangeably. This is, I forgot this is, I wanted, I've been wanting to ask someone this question. It feels like polling is sort of the popular term for it, but the like methodology literature is all about survey research. Are they interchangeable or to you, is a poll different from a survey? This this might seem pedantic, but I'm very curious. <laughs> you know, I think you might get different answers from different people on this. I use them entirely interchangeably. I generally think about polls as being more about attitudes and behaviors and surveys mm. being more a broader definition of kind of anything. It, it would include fact-based questions or knowledge-based questions, right, as well. But for the most part, they're the they're the same. <laughs> and so, why do we do it? Like, obviously, there's there's a 
there's a nerdy fascination with it, right? Like I read the Pew reports that come out and I go, this is very cool. Obviously I'm interested in opinion, but is it just a curiosity? Like what is the value? We wouldn't have all these high intensity survey operations in this country if if they didn't have some value. So to you, what, what do you think the, the point of doing this work is? I think it depends on the on the person, right? So um, for for the nerds in all of us or the people that like to watch politics, right? We love it when the election comes around because we want to know who's going to win um, before they announce a winner, before voting happens. So, so there's an election outcome or prediction aspect to it that I think is just of interest to people. I think for journalists, it gives people an objective source of sentiment. Um, it helps provide some numbers to um, some anecdotal stories that they might be telling, mm. or it helps give a voice to groups that are otherwise often silenced or, or not heard as well. Um, I think for other people, for for political um, leaders, it gives them information about what does the public think and therefore how should I act on that or what do they want or what do they feel is lacking? And they can make decisions and policies based on that information. Um, And I also think it helps in a similar vein provide financial planning, right? If you need to know how many people really need ac- you know, different types of access to healthcare, um, for example, then this tells you, this, this helps put that into context and helps tell you how much money you need to allocate towards something. Does, does Pew do any of the like direct policy interfacing or is it purely just, we're just telling you what we see here? So we are a nonpartisan um, kind of fact tank. So mm-hmm. our job is to get the information out there. Um, we do not take any kind of policy decision or uh, position. Sure, sure. But do you, do you? Is there any indication that it's being used? For, I mean, I have to imagine. Yes, right. I mean, is there anything you can see that's like, oh, this this work that we did is having an impact, right? We we didn't endorse it, <laughs> but it's it is having some impact. Sure. I I think um, we frequently get cited in a variety of news sources. We frequently get cited by politicians. I've seen our work being used in school textbooks, right? So I, I definitely think that it's it's useful um, to people, and I hope that it's being used as intended. Right. <laughs> um, so yeah. So let, let's let's unpack the process. We've kind of we've we've hit the highlights, but just to sort of make this concrete, one of the ways, uh, as I was thinking about talking to you, I was thinking that it would be a useful exercise to think about the process of dreaming up a survey implementing it with all the bells and whistles that are needed and then you know thinking about how we would interpret it because again I, I think that would help folks realize it's not just like oh someone went out on the street and i asked like 30 people a question and just kind of wrote down what they said <laughs> right like th- this is there's it takes some time and actually that is an interesting first question do you have any sense of like the timeline like from conception to the report comes out i'm sure it, it varies wildly but I mean, are we talking like a couple of days, a couple of weeks, or like this is like, these are many months of work to, to get it out there? It varies um, mm-hmm. significantly. So mm-hmm. um, for example, when um, an event, an immediate, an event happens that wasn't planned for, and we need some information about that, we can write 
the questions, hopefully test them before they're fielded, and then administer them to our panel because we have a source of people that are ready and willing um, relatively quickly. And then we take about 10 to 14 days typically to um, field the survey, right, to collect responses. And then we can write a report and, and get it out there in a few days after that. Hmm. That's the exception to the rule though, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and all the opposite end of things, these really large kind of one-off surveys that are tens of thousands of people across all 50 states and, the, and DC, it can take years to plan and implement. And if we are doing the survey by, mo- by mail, for example, that's several months of data collection. So it, so it really depends. I think on average, it probably takes us a few, few months to actually conduct the survey um, in the sense of somebody actually starts writing the questions and thinking about the sample size. But we start planning for most of those things a year in advance or so. Hmm. And the process is really, somebody has a research question that they wanna answer, and the, the methods team, myself included, um, start talking to those substantive people, right? On, okay, well, how, how are we gonna answer that question? And so there's, well, what data do you need for analysis, right? So what questions do you need to actually ask survey respondents? How many of those people do you need to ask? And that's a question about, well, what kind of analysis are you going to do? So are you going to compare kind of groups of the population? So we kind of want to have similar number of people in each of those groups to maximize our statistical power. Or do you want to say something just overall? And do you want to, you know, do you want to dig into the weeds here or there, et cetera? And so it's a question of how many people. And that also then dictates how we sample right? So we don't always interview the entire trends panel. Um, Sometimes we just select a subset of them. And then for the trends panel, most of our protocols for actually collecting data are consistent. So how we contact them in the first place, how many days there are in a field period, how long the questionnaire is, how, you know, do they get paid for their uh, responses or not? how we weight the data when the data are, are come in. All of those are pretty standard processes for us on the panel. But those are decisions that, you know, if you're working every time you're designing a brand new study with a brand new sample, you have to think about. When you use the trends panel, are you setting it mostly as we're going to field it for this number of days or until we hit this number of people? Again, probably depends <laughs> frequently the answer. But if it's like, oh, we're going to plan to have it open for, you know, seven days, probably there's a pretty reliable like benchmark for like how many respondents you can plan to get in those seven days. And so amount of time and number of people is probably about the same metric in that sense. Is that right? Right. We normally set it for time. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's typically because we do have publication timelines that we're also leaning towards or that we have to move on to the next survey that we're going Mm -hmm. to do. Right. So so ours are pretty much set on on time, um, not number of people. There's also a difference between later respondents and earlier respondents, sometimes depending on the topic. And so we want to make sure that we've got enough time to get those kind of late participants in, into the survey. Hmm. So yeah, I hadn't thought it because there, there are, so I will say in, in the psychology world, when we do online surveys, often we use these methods that 
you can get lots of people very quickly. <laughs> but I hadn't thought of, you know, you might want to push that out further because you're capitalizing on a very maybe narrow sample by only keeping it open for, you know, six hours <laughs> or whatever it is. Is are there can you speak at all to like what those differences might be? Like what what are you gaining by keeping it open just a little bit longer? That's very topic specific. Um, yeah. Who are those later respondents and who are the early respondents? Early respondents are typically in, in general are very um, civically engaged, right? They're more likely to vote. They're more likely to volunteer. They're more likely to be the head of their homeowners association, right? Whereas later respondents, you get folks that aren't that eager um, mm -hmm. to participate. That's an example, but but there are different correlations depending on the topic. Mm -hmm. you, you mentioned too the, especially when you have a quick turnaround, right? Something very timely. Was it? Am I reading your uh, your CV right? That did you join Pew like in the midst of the pandemic? Is that right? I did. Yeah, because those early Pew data, I think, were very useful. I mean, I've cited them recently for a paper, right? In terms of differences and who's sort of quick to uptake different recommendations and that sort of stuff. And you look and you go, oh my God, these data are from March and April, 2020, which is like, that's, you had no time. You had to just like hit the ground running. And of course you did because this was the most you know timely thing to look at. But you mentioned ideally having the uh, opportunity to test questions. So what does that look like? Why would you want to test questions? And, and how do you actually do that to know if they're good? Well, we test questions because um, not everybody understands things the way that we intend them or, or have the same vocabulary that the people writing them have. And, and people don't always interpret them the same way. So what testing includes varies dramatically, right? So when we are short on time, every questionnaire that we field goes through our, our methods group. And it is reviewed always before it's actually fielded. So hopefully you get kind of an expert review from that perspective. We also oftentimes start slowly. So we might only collect, you know, a few dozen responses first to see if anything looks weird. Um, and what I mean by that is maybe we had a pretty good sense of what the distribution might look like, how many yeses or nos or strongly agrees, disagrees, et cetera. And if that's just totally off, we might dig a little deeper. We also always ask a question at the end of our surveys about that's kind of open-ended. Did the question, you know, did the survey seem biased? Did you have any feedback, et cetera? And we review all of those comments as well. So if we have more time, there are a couple things to do. Number one is cognitive interviewing. And that's where you actually recruit people. You ask them the, the survey question, right? The question you want to field. And then you ask them follow-up questions. Well, how did you come up with your answer? What did this question mean to you? Did you understand this word? That's very time consuming and it's also very expensive, right? Mm. So it doesn't always get done. You can also field questions on kind of these these convenience panels um, or non-probability panels. So for example, SurveyMonkey um, has a panel where you can set up a question in five minutes and, and go ask a bunch of people to participate. And you'll get some feedback that way as well to hmm. see, okay, well, what does the distribution look like? 
Are they having problems answering this question? Are they offended by this question, et cetera? And so those are kind of the the, the quick hit items on, on testing. I, I realize I steamrolled right by the fact that you joined Pew in the middle <laughs> at the beginning of, of the <laughs> pandemic. What was that? I mean, it's got to be, were you on the road to making that shift pre-lockdown? Or was that something that happened like post-lockdown? You thought, oh, let's uh, <laughs> let's, let's just try something new. <laughs> I had actually interviewed with them I probably one of the last weeks that everybody was in the office. So I was in mm. the office physically. And then after that, it, it kind of just all went from there. Um, it, <laughs> you know, not because of Pew, but just because of personally, I was terrified of making a job shift in the mi- middle of a pandemic. But I am now, I'm happy I did. Were you involved in, in any of that early work or you were probably just still getting your bearings at that point? Right, right. No, I was not involved in any of the COVID work that early. Um, okay, so uh, research question is identified. Questions are designed and tested. Oftentimes, it sounds like they go to a predetermined panel, right, that you use all the time. But sometimes it's, you know, a whole new sampling strategy. Data come back. They're weighted. You write up a report. Does that pretty much capture the whole process? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Just making sure there's no no stone left unturned there. Um so the the kinds of big projects that you're talking about that take so long, and it sounds like those are the ones that you're sort of the most um, intimately involved with. Can you give any example of, of a kind of project that would warrant that sort of extra level of investment? Sure. Um, so two things come to mind. Number one is anytime we want to look at very rare populations or very specific geographies, Um, So the American Trends Panel is really meant as a national general population panel. So if we want to study just Asian Americans, or if we want to study every, we want to make estimates for every single state, that's a place where where our current panel is just not equipped to do that. It's not designed to do that. Um, And so that's where we have to do these these one-off surveys. Anytime we need to interview in languages other than English and Spanish, right? That's when we are going to have to do something that's that's not our typical um, process. And, and then if we want a lot of people, that's, that's another place where we need additional resources and additional kind of design help. So what are, what are the kind of things that have to happen to recruit unique populations? Um, is it all online? Are there are we random digit dialing still? I don't know if we are still doing that. <laughs> or or you know, how how are we getting out and capturing the voices that need to be captured uniquely? So we don't do a lot of random digit dialing, also known as RDD, and that's what telephone surveys are. Um we don't do a lot of that anymore. It's not entirely off the table, but it's it's not a lot of what we do. Most of what we do these days is actually what's called address-based sampling. So the Postal Service has a list of every residential or arguably every residential address in the United States, and they make that through some vendors commercially available. And you can draw a sample of addresses and mail information to those addresses, either with a link that they can go online or um, actually mail them a paper survey and they can fill it out and send it back in. That's typically how we go about um, our kind of specialized surveys. 
Other people still use random digit dial um, or telephone. And again, they sample a random telephone number of 10 digits, right? And they dial it and they hope it connects and they hope <laughs> it somebody picks up and they hope um, it's not a business, right? Um, they hope it's not a minor cell phone, right? Other people um, use the internet and that is sometimes through a panel similar to our trends panel that is recruited via one of these other methods, right? So actually people got recruited through the mail or, or mail invitation to fill out something online um, or phone, et cetera. The alternative to that is what's known as non-probability sampling. And that's when you get a pop-up um, on your screen that says, hey, do you wanna answer a few questions, right? Hmm. That's not random. It's not statistically a probability sample, um, and it makes some requirements or makes some assumptions about people. And so in general, the center shies away from that kind of um, survey frame. So it, it's, you know, there are multiple ways to do online surveys, but we look at ways um, to do online surveys that recruited for, through phone or recruited through mail um, in the hmm. first place. Is the trends panel like the, the, go-to one? Is that a, a male recruited panel? Exactly. Hmm. Okay. So this all sounds wonderful, obviously, right? <laughs> this is, th these are the steps that need to be taken. My impression though, is there are lots of polling numbers that float around our media. And I, I just got this feeling in the last election that there were, I mean, just so many polling numbers that were used for whatever position anyone wanted. <laughs> And there, you know, it's hard as a consumer to know, like, well, why this person is saying more than half the country loves that candidate. This person's saying more than half the country loves that candidate. Just logically, those cannot both be true <laughs> numbers. What can we do as consumers to cut through that and find the data that are actually reliable uh, indicators of public opinion? So I think there are a few questions to ask yourself. The first is kind of who sponsored it and who conducted it. And the reason I say that is because in today's day and age where anybody with a few thousand dollars can do an internet survey, right? There's a very low barrier to entry. And so you really wanna look for those people that you know and kind of have been around for a while and have been doing this for a while to, to put a little more trust in. That's not to say the new folks on the scene are always terrible, but it's definitely something to ask yourself and, and think about. Another thing I would ask is how many interviews were conducted and in what time frame, right? So are we talking about 10 years ago or are we talking now? And are we talking 10 people or are we talking 1,000 people? And that really helps identify how stable that statistic is, or I know this gets into the weeds, but basically kind of what's the plus minus there? The third thing I would ask is what's the source of the frame, right? So how did mm -hmm. they identify who they want to interview? And that's where that probability, non-probability concept comes in, right? Did they recruit via a list that should be of the entire population? Most people have a phone, a cell phone or a landline. Most people live at in an address and have an address. And so if we're sampling from one of those frames, we're in a pretty good place. Where some of the, the non-probability stuff is kind of random and depends on a lot of things. I'd also say kind of how's the survey weighted, right? Is it unweighted? And if it's unweighted, I place very little 
um, credibility in it. And that's because, like I mentioned before, we know that women are more likely to respond than men. We know that um, minority groups are less likely to respond. Less educated, less income are also less likely to respond. So we really need to make sure that we correct some of that statistically in the weighting before we report the data. And the last and probably the most important thing I'll say is it's all about transparency. If you can't find the answers to any of those questions, then something fishy is going on. Um, and you really should be able to find that information. Um, it should be readily available, readily published, and that'll help you sort through the details. Nice. Very helpful. You know, it, it reminded me, I have a somewhat technical question, which is about the waiting part. I, I have had, and you kind of answered it for me, and I, I just kind of want to clarify it, which is that I had this impression that if you do like a true like probability say like random sampling procedure you don't need to do any fancy waiting right because all the legwork was in the recruitment side of things but i the response bias is i'm guessing why it's still important to go like sure we tried to get as many men as women <laughs> to answer these questions but if more women than men did we have to sort of make sure uh, you know also okay <laughs> First, I'm going to leave that question out there. Is that is that about right? Yes. Yes. Okay. If you had everybody respond, then you're right. The sampling would take care of it. But that's not reality. So the other part of the waiting question is, how do you decide what to wait by? Right. There's there's an enormous number of variables that you could wait by. Right. And in some ways you'd go, well, do I have any reason to think that men would answer this question differently than women? Like, why do I care about gender, but I'm not waiting for age or I'm not waiting for these other identities? You know, in a given report that you would put out, how many variables do you end up waiting the responses by? And how do you decide which are worth waiting? So for the American Trends Panel, we have a pretty um, standard waiting procedure. It's not... Um, we. We do create one-off weights from time to time, um, but for the most part, it's set. It's pretty standard. I couldn't tell you off the top of my head how many variables there are, but you can read about it on the Pew mm -hmm. Research Center's website. Transparency. Um, we, we publish all of that, <laughs> exactly. Um, how people make that choice, the, the default is you wait by sociodemographic information, all right? So typically age, gender, income, education, et cetera. After that, you're really waiting by the things that are both correlated to your response. So what makes you more or less likely to respond for whatever reason, and the things that are also correlated with your outcome, right? So what makes you decide that you believe or don't believe in climate change, right? Or that you um, are more likely to watch CNN than Fox News. The things that are related to both are really the items that you that you should be waiting by. For a, a lot of a, a lot of the post-election, especially in 2016, a lot of the post-election research that was done on what the polls were doing right and wrong. Um, one of the things that came out of that research was that a lot of pollsters at the time, pre-2016, were not waiting on on education. And that that turned out to be really critical. And so that's what a lot of the pollsters started to do after that election. Hmm. Um, okay, as a way of wrapping up, I want to ask you about alternative sources of these data, because I know you've done some work on that. So 
gold standard, right? I mean, this is from the earliest days, the old straw polls and all that. So we've been asking people questions directly for ages, but now we have all sorts of new ways to know what people are thinking. And so what could you just give us a taste of like, where else are people starting to look to gauge public opinion outside of mailing them an invitation to respond to a survey? All over the place. I think that a lot of uh, folks are doing research into social media, right? And analyzing Twitter feeds. I think that's great in a lot of ways to help identify how people that publish information or, or post tweet about things on social media, um, how they're responding and, and how um, they feel. But that's not the general population, right? And so it really depends on what your goal is and what your research objective is. People are using Google search data to see what people are looking at or, or um, looking up or, or care about, et cetera. In general, we're using natural language processing, which is basically a big computer that can analyze lots of text all at once. And we can use that to analyze media or leaders and what they say, like interviews with them. Um, we can analyze sermons about it and, and church information. And then there's a whole lot of data that's not necessarily measuring attitudes per se, but is definitely um, giving us more information that, that we want or need. So um, big databases like voter records, right? We know whether or not you voted. Um, we, can, we have access to that information through records files. Folks that do work in public health with consent may have access to electric, uh, electronic health records or medical records, right? So they can see things like vaccination, um, rates. We're looking at imagery data. So there's been some cool um, satellite data that can look at at night and take pictures mm. at uh, light pollution. And that helps in developing countries identify where the wealthy live, right? Because mm. they have electricity. Or it might help us to identify, you know, other farmland, et cetera. And we are using data, um, satellite imagery to look at crop growth to help our national agricultural statistics. So there's a whole, if you can think of a, a <laughs> number, there's probably a data set for it. I've, I've been reading some of the, the recent work that's using GPS data when they were tracking mm -hmm. like movements in early pandemic times and able to sort of see like, where are people act just still roaming around <laughs> and where are they actually staying in their homes? Um, that's I don't a great know if you've example. all messed with any of, of that other stuff, but the imagery one, that, that is very cool. And, and those have to involve partnerships outside of Pew, right? Or, or are you, you're more talking generally or, or is Pew actually doing some of this work as well? Um, I'm talking generally. Yes. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> Just to be clear. Very cool. Well, uh, I, I don't want to take any more of your time. Well, I think we've gotten our education in polling, and, and I appreciate you taking the time to walk us through those steps. Well, thanks for having me. All right, that'll do it for another episode of Opinion Science. Thank you so much to Ashley Amaya for taking the time to talk about polling. And also thanks to Calvin Jordan and Rachel Weissel at Pew for helping set this up. To learn more about Pew and the work that they do, check out the show notes for links to their website and links to some of the topics that came up in our conversation. By the way, this episode was tricky <laughs> because the, the, there's this thing in voiceover where P sounds can get distorted through a microphone. They're called plosives. 
anyhow, I, I kept having to say things like Pew Public Opinion Polling. <laughs> so I'm sorry if that hurt your eardrums along the way. For more about this show, you can pop on over to OpinionSciencePodcast.com for transcripts uh, of this and other episodes, links to fun stuff, and even a picture of me, uh, just in case you want to ruin whatever face you've imagined goes with this voice. Find a place on the web to rate and review the show, Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, Good Pods, Stitcher, <laughs> help people find the show, and subscribe to Opinion Science on your favorite app. Never miss an episode, and next one is a big one, too, so get excited. Okay, that'll do it for me. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you in a couple weeks for more Opinion Science. Bye-bye. <laughs>